Good morning. That's good to be back. Um, let me have you find Titus 2. Titus chapter 2. And uh, it's good to be back. I just got back not that long ago from our convention's annual meeting. I uh, hope to give a report on that on Wednesday if we have time. Uh, the other thing, happy Father's Day uh, to you guys out there. I hope it's a great one for you. Uh, if it is, be thankful. Uh, if it's not, uh, you know, turn to God, turn to Christ, right? Uh, either way, live what you are before the Lord. It's all about him. All right. So happy Father's Day. Given that, we're going to be talking about men this morning and our passage comes out of Titus. Uh, we're going to take excerpts from that. So if it's better for you, you can see on the back of your handout, mine's Marked up because I already have the answers, helpful if you're preaching. But at the bottom of that on the back page, you can see those. You can just follow along that way if you choose. All right, this is God's word, so let's read it together from Titus chapter 2. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Down to verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 11. For, by, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Again, this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to meet as the church, the people of Christ who have been blood-bought, who have been saved by grace, who have come to you only on the merit of Jesus. What a great God you are. What a great Savior Jesus is. We, we pray for uh, friends here who... Um, are wondering about the faith. They're wondering about you, and we pray that you would guide them. Just turn on the light so that they can see Jesus clearly and come to know you. And as we talk about Titus 2 and about men in particular, would you guide my mouth and, uh, and our hearts that will meditate well together, that will think well together, and that will be men of virtue as men who follow Christ. And do that for your glory and as a light to the world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let me start by saying I'm working off of a couple of assumptions. Two assumptions, you see this in your handout. Two assumptions as we talk about men uh, this morning. One is this, a man is not a woman, okay? This is not controversial. It might sound like it, you know, because the way the discourse plays out these days, but even if you go to the most progressive of, of people who talk about this issue, nobody denies that there are men and women. 
Everybody, even to the most progressive. They would say there are categories such as men and women. Now, some affirm that there are more than men and women, and they see those two categories as reductionistic. But everyone affirms that there are, in fact, men and women. Okay? Everyone affirms that men and women are also, catch this, different. Nobody denies this. All right? So it's true even in the discourse today. It's also been true throughout the rest of the history of the world. I mean, by the rest of the history of the world, I mean, not overstatement, I mean the rest of the history of the world. So in the West, in the East, in ancient tribal societies, inside and outside of the Christian faith, people have recognized and assumed that there are men and there are women. And they have viewed these phenomena as basic observable categories of reality. A man is not a woman and vice versa. And the point is that while men and women bear so much in common, way more, in fact, than on which they differ, there are differences that are worth noting. There are differences that are worth pointing out. In other words, we'd say this. Even if you look at the Bible, right, most things apply to all of us. You, you look at diet. You look at work ethic. You look at management, all that. Most things apply to all of us. Some things, though, apply specifically to women, and some things apply specifically to men. The difference is not one of value. It's a difference in reality. You could look at the biological differences between the sexes. This difference tends to mean that men and women take on different roles. Sometimes that's religiously, you know, the, the role of an elder, something like that. Sometimes it's biologically driven. You get married and you decide to have a child you don't decide which one of you will bear the child. She will bear the child. That's decided for you. It's pre-decided, right? There's a difference there um, regardless of what one's mindset is. And usually, even between the most collaborative of couples, you know, if, if somebody breaks into the house, the husband doesn't look at his wife and go, hey, you know, it's Tuesday, so that's, it's your day to fight off any intruders. Uh, even in the most egalitarian of, of couples, right? And what we're talking about, this difference doesn't mean more important, less important, uh, better or worse. I'm not even talking about all the implications of it. All I'm doing is I'm pointing out that it's there. There are differences, and those differences show up inevitably in every couple, but also in everyday life. A man is not a woman. Number two, a man is not a boy. There's nothing wrong with being a boy if you are one. There is something wrong with being a boy if you're supposed to be a man at this season in your life, right? A boy should be a man in the making, and a man should be a boy matured. He should be already there. No going back, right? The egg has been hatched. You can't go back in uh, sort of a deal. And again, the difference here doesn't mean that uh, more important or less important or better or worse. It just means different. A boy who's a boy is what he's supposed to be. Nothing wrong with that. I, I think this is maybe a too simple way of looking at it, but here's a simple way of looking at it. The difference between a, a, a boy and a man might be the long game. Like a, a man really has to think and look at what, what has to be done here. What, where do I want to be? Where am I going? So that you could say it like this, perhaps. A boy asks, what do I want to do? What do I feel like doing? What am I in the mood for? Ooh, I, I'm not sure I, I want to do that. How do I feel? And a man asks, 
what needs to be done because that's my values inform my wants and so that's going to drive what I do. A boy asks, what do I want to do? A man asks, what do I need to do? And that's what I want to do. Okay? That's the basic difference. That want-to training is a big part of it. All of us men, uh, you know, deal with this every day. Right? What do I want to do versus what needs to be done? So all that to say we're talking about men today. Not women, not boys, but what boys become, that's men. And Titus 2 talks about the makeup of the whole church and asks the question, what's a good church supposed to look like? You know, whenever you look at a church and how they're made up, what, what is it that we should see in all of the members of the body? And on Mother's Day, we talked about women, about older women and younger uh, women. And today we're talking about men. Men of Christ, Titus 2, are to be men of virtue. Something of a theme, something that uh, you think of. Those who bear the gospel on the island of Crete, which is, is the location that they're talking about here in this letter, really supposed to stand out for Christ. And so it's something that's really needed. The context is uh, they've already planted churches there on the island of Crete. Crete is, uh, is an island off of Greece, part of Greece, the second largest in the eastern Mediterranean. And they've already planted churches there. And Paul is sending Titus back with instructions on kind of phase two. Now what? We've planted churches, and what do they need? And they need a couple of things. They need, you can really see this in chapter one, they need leaders, but they also need to deal with this problem that they need to bring Christ's message to the world that they're in rather than mirroring the world that they're in. So look at uh, the way Crete the culture there is described in chapter 1, verse 12. Is Paul's writing to Titus. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. High praise indeed, right? You know, it's a good neighborhood. The school system is great there, right? Uh, kind of thing. So it tells you something about Crete, but it also tells you something about the Christian life. This is enormous. Part of the calling of a man is just to be a decent one. Like, part of the calling of a man is don't mess things up all the time, right? Don't, don't headlong, uh, you know, don't go headlong into self-ruin, uh, that sort of thing. So, the, Paul is calling on the church to show God's character in a world that contradicts it. And you can see the rationale for this in verses 11 through 14 to kind of like, what's the why? If men of Christ are to be men of character, why? He says so in verse 11 through 14. You know, for the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce all ungodliness, training us to renounce all worldliness, and to be godly, and to represent that as we wait for Christ here. Be a people of virtue because of what God is doing in the world and what he'll do in the future. John 13, John 17, Matthew 5, 16. See this rationale all through Scripture. You're to be a reflection of, of the work God's already done. But in other words, but part of that is just to bring God glory because he's worthy. That's part of the rationale. You can look at what does, what does Christian virtue do. One thing it does is it brings glory to God. Right, that in a dark world, there you are, God's persistence to say, not only do I exist, you can't deny it, it's 
It's going to go on and on. There's going to come a time that everybody's going to see how incontrovertible a fact this is. Brings glory to God. But now to your handout. Another thing Christian virtue tends to do is that the way you live tends to make people believe the mission and the message more or less. All right? Again, you see it in John 13, see it in John 17, see it in Matthew 5, 16. The one, your character, the way you live for Christ has this impact that people see it and it tends to either draw them in to draw conclusions about what God is doing in the world, specifically in Christ, to make them believe either the Christian message, the gospel is true, they're going to believe that more, or they look at your life and they go, there's, a, there's such a huge disconnect between what you say and what you're about um, and the way you live, right? You, you talk one way and you live another way. I, I don't believe what you're saying. And that's, that's a big part of the rationale. You see it showing up, again, all through Scripture. And so Paul, as he was working out this rationale, and we, we dealt with uh, the ladies on Mother's Day, addresses three groups that are, who are specifically men in Titus uh, 2. He addresses other groups, uh, but he addresses three groups who are specifically men. What are those three groups? Number one is the pastor. Shows up, this is kind of a pastor's manual. So you see it in the text. You see it in verse 1. He's talking to Titus in particular. Verses 7 and 8 and verse 15, not to mention, you know, all of chapter 1. Okay? So again, so sort of makes sense because it's something of a pastor's manual. And what Paul does in the chapter is he starts with Titus. Hmm, where to begin? Well, why don't we begin with the leader? It's a logical starting point. It goes all the way back again to chapter 1. Church leaders are supposed to be teachers and modelers of the Christian faith. Now, they may not be the, the best in every category or whatnot, but you should be able to look at uh, a Titus, you should be able to look at a teacher, you should be able to look at a pastor elder, you should be able to say, well, look, this is a model of how to do it. Imperfect as we are, uh, you should be able to see that. So what's expected of the whole uh, should be exemplified in the leader. It's, it's actually everybody's supposed to do this. Everybody's called to live this way because of who Jesus is and how he's worthy. But, you know, you see a paradigm for it or a model for it, and it ought to be the Christian leader. That's what Paul is saying to Titus. Listen, what, what we're calling them to do, you do. What we're calling them to do, they should just be able to look at your life and see it on display there. You know, that's how Titus does it. So let, let's follow that paradigm and work off of that. And Paul points out three things to Titus, also known as the pastor, the elder. Three things. Number one, his teaching, this is verse 1, his teaching should guide people in godliness. Look at verse 1 with me again. As for you, again, he's addressing Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. Uh, if they'll receive it, not everybody has ears to hear. If they'll receive it, the effect of his teaching should be that it guides them in godliness. They should be uh, live a better life for Christ, a clear life for Christ. Uh, where do we get that? 
well, uses the word sound. Sound means healthy. It's like life-producing. There's a contrast uh, from the false teachers in verse 11. He points out these false teachers and he says, these people, these guys teach what they ought not teach. But sound teaching is the, op the opposite of that. It's life-producing, right? Because it's about the gospel and the life that flows from the gospel. It, it exudes spiritual vitality. So that's the way his teaching is supposed to be marked. It's supposed to guide people into godliness. You'd like, if you'll receive it, the benefit is that you're better for Jesus. There's a spiritual vitality that you draw from there. The second one is his ministry should be one that people can respect. Look at verses 7 and 8. Show yourself, he's addressing Titus again here. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Now listen to this part. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Ah, criticism. Does anybody, the leaders ever get criticized? I mean, like, for example, it must be great to be the president of the United States because nobody ever has an opinion about what you do or, you know, uh, or a pastor or whatever. This criticism. His, his, his works and teaching shouldn't be open to the kind of criticism that undermines what God is about in his work in the world. Right? You shouldn't look at his life and just go like, okay, big disconnect. But there will be criticism. That's actually fine. It's inevitable and it goes with the territory. Let me give you a, a couple of things. Some criticism, you just sort of reduce, okay? It's not like, it's not a big deal. Some criticism, you consider the source. And this is true whether you uh, have a role like me or just anybody. If somebody is, uh, criticizes you, and I'm, by and large, if you look at that person and they're a grumbly, critical person, you just dismiss it because they have dismissible criticisms, right? You just go, oh, you're a critical person. That's the merit, the so-called merit of your criticism. You just get rid of it. Don't bother with it. There's no credibility to it, okay? A second kind is there is a kind of person who opposes everything that's good, essentially. They have the kind of character that if they criticize you, you should actually consider it a compliment, okay? If somebody criticizes you and they're that kind of person, you're like, I guess I'm probably on the right track. You know, if you don't like what I'm doing, if you don't like what I'm about, I'm probably in pretty good, safe territory. Let me give you some examples of this. Uh, let's start with the Lord Jesus. Jesus was criticized. Okay, he was to the cross, crucified, crucified, criticized. Paul was criticized. It turns out your elders, Brad, and I are not at the Jesus level, and we are not even at the Paul level. But that's the point. You can be right and still get criticized. Okay, you, you look at it in Jesus, you look at it in Paul. Sometimes I can get criticized or Brad could get criticized. And you're right. No big deal. Criticism happens. You can be perfect like Jesus and still get criticized. You just don't want the criticism of the pastor's life and teaching to have this kind of substantiation to it that it undermines, right, the credibility of the gospel that undermines the gathering of the church and what we're to be about. So he tells him, your teaching has to be this way. It has to have integrity. In other words, it's untainted. What does he mean by that? 
What he means by it is that you're not putting these other things in just because everybody likes it. Like, it shouldn't be filled with all of your own ideas or these trends or, or the wisdom of today that's going to pass tomorrow. Like, your teaching ought to be the teaching. It ought to be whenever you bring God's word that they don't go, well, I mean, Stacy has a lot of opinions about a lot of things. Brad has lots of thoughts on, on these. It ought to be, this is the teaching. This is what's in the word. This is how God has made himself known. And look, it's, the teaching is helpful to show what God has said in his word. His teaching must have dignity. Right? There's a seriousness about his, uh, his teaching. There's a moral earnestness about it. It's not playing around. Right? It's, not, it's not just a gig to him, like, a, like hey, I'm good at preaching, and then I, I do the other things that are disconnected from the Christian life. So there's a dignity about it. There's a connectedness. And again, his teaching must be sound, it's healthy, life-producing. It's, uh, it's gospel-centered. So that's the second one, and here's the third one. And it's in verse 15. Look at, let's just read that first. Declare these things, he tells to Titus. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. He is telling Titus that there are certain things that you just are absolutely non-negotiable. And they're what he's, he's mentioned here. So what's the third thing? He has to be inflexible on the essentials. Inflexible. Now, not everything is worth confrontation. As a matter of fact... Most things aren't worth confrontation. You know, I've, I've had people, because of what I do, people will go like, hey, listen, I don't like your shoes. And I try to, in as godly a way as I can think of, I try to just say, I don't care. It makes no difference to me, right? Are you, oh, you did your hair differently. I got a haircut over the weekend, whatever it is, right? Don't care. Most things are not worth the confrontation. As a matter of fact, it's a sign of immaturity to see every opinion, uh, difference of opinion as an occasion to scrap. We don't live in that kind of world. We live in a fallen world. You don't get to order everything in a fallen world. It's too much. That happens when he comes back. In the meantime, the essentials, the essentials, the essentials. And the essentials are worth confrontation. You lose the essentials. And you lose the thing itself. You lose the essence of the Christian faith, right? The essentials to it. Whatever you're proclaiming, it isn't the Christian faith after that. That's, that's oftentimes the battle. And the wisdom is to know the difference. Inflexible on the essentials. You know, there are lots of things you just let it go. There are other things that you go, nope, nope, it's to the mat. All the way to the mat. On the essentials, he tells Titus, you got to stand. You must be heard. You must not be disregarded. People cannot ignore you on this. And on the essentials, you don't want your pastor to be a wimp either. He can't be disregarded either, right? All right, enough about me. Let's talk about you. Second category is older men. Verse 2. Let's read that together. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, Sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Uh, who should we call an older man? It's hard to say. It's easier to say than it was on Mother's Day. It was, uh, you know. But Paul doesn't say that it starts at a particular age or anything. There is a basis to say, oh, he talks to older, men, older women and, uh, and older, or older men as well. 
And so there's probably a basis to connect the older man to the older woman. And what you could say about her in the dynamics of the passage, something like this, that she's likely at a place that her children are out of the house or right there. They're grown, right? You know, at least close to that. And so she's an older woman. You're welcome for the reminder. Um, And his connection to her says he's probably in the same boat, right? That's who he is. It's obviously a relative description. He's older relative to the younger guys. Uh, He's in that older category. So therefore, he should be more mature. And if he is more mature, it's not automatic. If he is more mature, he should probably have more influence. In fact, older saints in the church are to take the lead in character. They should be a model of how to do it for those who are younger and like a preview of where they're headed to give them an idea of how to do it in those later stages. He says this specifically to the women. And Titus points out four traits that these older men are to exemplify. Four traits in verse 2. He tells an older man, like, listen, you need to be sober-minded. You have to be sober-minded. Sober, not intoxicated uh, by things that corrupt your reason. He exercises clear-tempered judgment. He's been there before, so he acts like it. He knows what he's about. He's to be sober-minded. Number two, an older man is to be dignified. This doesn't mean that he's humorless, but it does mean that he doesn't make light of sin. He, He doesn't elevate the lesser things into the greater things. The dignity means that he recognizes where things are weighty, and he understands that, and he navigates accordingly. There's an earnest morality about him. He embraces the, importance, the important things with the seriousness that they, deserves, that they deserve. He positions himself on the priorities. An older man is to be self-controlled. What's the opposite of self-controlled? Like out of control? The things outside of you controlling you? you? You read the book of Titus and self-control shows up all over the place. It's supposed to apply to the elders. It's a theme throughout the letter. It often carries the nuance of sexual self-control. There should be a self-possession about an older man. His his conviction should drive his life rather than his desires. What what has he decided is important? What has he decided that is true and is honorable? And that should be the defining feature of his life. That's where he heads. He's not in the grip of lust. His desires don't control him. He controls him. His desires don't control him. He controls himself. And then finally, an older man is to be spiritually sound, right? He says, you know, sound in, in faith and love and endurance. He's supposed to have a spiritual vitality about him uh, in the faith as he relates to God. That's what you see in your hand out there. And love for others as uh, he relates to others. And in, and in endurance as he relates to himself. I thought this was pretty interesting. Why endurance? Who's he, who's he talking to here? He's talking to an older guy. Guess where you need endurance when you're in a race, a long race? You need it in the later parts, you know? You run a long race. Uh, let's just say you run a 10K and you're about the you know, second mile or whatever. You feel pretty good. Run a 10K and you get to that last mile and you don't feel pretty good. Where do you need endurance? You need it in those later 
seasons. That's who he's talking to. In a nutshell, you look at an older guy, and if he's got the character, it's the little, little things never knock him off the path. Right? He's not, those things don't bother him. He lives like he belongs to Jesus because he does. Because he does. All right, finally, third category, let's get to the younger guys. A younger man, right? This is kind of funny to me. Look at verse uh, 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. I'll tell you why I think this is funny. Because everyone else, older men, older women, uh, younger women, I mean, Paul kind of piles on. He's got all this advice, all this stuff that they're supposed to do. Hey, listen, you got to do this and avoid this and watch out for this because of this. And the younger guys, he goes, um, just be self-controlled. Okay? If you'll just do that, it's a win. Huge win if you'll just do that. That's fun. I, like, listen, we all struggle with sin, but add to this that sort of the nature of, the young, the, the, the nature of a younger man's life is energy. So we all struggle with sin, and you got Mr. Young Energetic here. That sounds like a recipe for disaster. And so he says... You know what, guys? Self-control. In this season in your life, generally, this is the key, the key virtue for you. Self-control. Nothing else in your life can be addressed, not really, if self-control is absent. If you don't have self-control, you can have all these other things that you want to be about, but your finances, your work, your sex, your hobbies and toys, your diet, your sleep, your temper... If you don't have self-control, it doesn't matter because if you build it, you'll just eventually break it if you don't have self-control. You'll break what's important to you without self-control. This is a baseline for men. So it's funny, but it's wise. Um, a lot of us older guys could do with a reminder. You notice how he talks to the older guys and it features there too. You don't expect a broken flashlight to show you the way in the dark. And you don't expect a broken man to show the image of Christ in a dark world. We, you want to know the first character issue God wants you to address? It's probably self-control. Uh, without it, you hurt the people who depend on you. Without it, you undermine your own dreams. Without it, you're, you're not in a good position to represent Christ. But with it, with it, the fruits of godliness are there to be enjoyed. Enjoyed. And they are so enjoyable. But you won't get there if you're ruining yourself. Okay? All right. That's the passage in a nutshell. Those three categories of men. You see the overlap and whatnot. Let me give you a suggested way to apply this. Uh, this would be good for everybody in the room. I know we've addressed men in particular, but it would be a good one for everyone. Answer the following question, you know, like this homework assignment um, in your own quiet times. Number one, what virtue do you need to address right now? What, what character development, what's the area that you need to address and nurture right now? Uh, just, I mean, in the season you're in, that changes from time to time, right? You can do well in, in one, and, and that can change as you go down the road. Second question. Why'd you choose it? Why'd you choose it? 
You need to know it's worth it. You either choose it because you go like, man, I really am driven to do this. I think I'm called to do this. Or this is the thing that's killing me. Something that's killing you, that's what you need to address, right? If it's ruining your life, if it's, if it's hurting the people around you, alert. That's the one you need to hit. Why'd you choose it? Because you need to know it's worth it. Is it worth it? If it's worth it, make the sacrifices to do it, then do it. Even if you lose, keep, keep at it. And then number three, What's your plan to grow? How are you going to do it? What, what are the steps that you're going to take? It's, see, let me tell you something. It's really common uh, for a man. We all have weaknesses. We all have holes in our game. And it's really common for a man who has a weakness uh, that isn't easily resolved. So you try to fix it and you try to get past it and it doesn't quite work. And that's discouraging and it's deflating. And so here you have this hole in your game. You you want to get better at it, and it doesn't happen easily. And instead of staying at it, what a lot of men do, it's very common, is they start protecting it. It's just who I am. They start navigating around it. They start making excuses for it. And the problem with that is that you never become the man you want to become if you do that. If you make excuses for where you need to grow, and here's why, because as the clock ticks and you go from the younger to the older stage or you go from the, the older to, uh-oh, a more older, 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 older uh, stage, as you do that, you need more strength of character in the later stages because you face bigger and harder things. It's one of the cool things about, it's not so cool to be young and not wise, but you're in a very resilient phase in your life. You make mistakes and they, there's the opportunity for those to be growing and learning experiences as a general rule. You get older and you have less room to navigate. The clock is ticking. You're in the third, the fourth quarter, right? And generally you need more strength of character as you age, not less. The things are bigger and harder. You're dealing with things that are about to be ultimate. And weakness, it turns out, happens in moments. You can do it just like that. Just like that. And character has to be all the time. Uh, where you need to go requires consistency. Detours take you a different way. So what virtue do you need to nurture right now? I said I would close with that. I'm sorry. I'm going to close with this. Okay. Um. I'm reading this book right now on uh, team performance, and I've been kind of dabbling with it. I need to talk about virtue. I need to really dig into this. Uh, but it's on team performance. Like, what is it that makes up a team that really performs well, they produce, they win, uh, they're collective? Because you take a team with all of its disparate parts, uh, what otherwise would be disparate parts, and you want them to work together to come to a higher level. And what is it that makes a team like, do that or not do that. It's funny, you know, you always think about talent and skill and stuff like that, and that's obvious, right? Somebody who just has the raw material to do the thing that needs to be done. That's obvious. Anybody knows that. But when it comes to the team, the collective actually producing, the observation on this, and they studied lots and lots of, um, you know, performing teams and their leaders, particularly in the sports arena. So it's actually the behavior not like, did you make the shot, but what do you do every day all the time? 
behavior, how they live, not just the skill, who they are, what they're committed to do and be. And this is what they call it. I think this is pretty cool. They call it, it's like there's a line, above the line and below the line behavior. Like this, here's a line, and this is who we are. That's above the line behavior. This is who we are, and how, where you are right now, that's below the line behavior. That is not who we are. You're being called to above the line behavior. And in Titus, you can see that. We all come from below the line places. You know, right? Uh, Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Maybe your resume is a little bit different than that. But even if your hometown was great, your spiritual condition was Titus 1.12. We all come from these below the line places. Christ is calling you above the line. He's calling you to live there for his glory as we await uh, the appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's our blessed hope. Let's pray. Lord, your word is so good. Um, and we are, uh, on our own, not capable of doing everything that we ought to. And so we pray for grace. We know that you love us. We know that you'll help us. We know that you're for us. And so that we pray that we would live as as it were, by analogy, above the line, in a way that just reflects what you're doing through Christ in the world. Show your work in us. Help us to be men of self-control and dignity, men who love Christ, who love the people around us, and who really show your glory, so that at the heart of it, uh, the watching world, whoever, whoever considers Christ, uh, can see his glory. And so that those uh, among us who stumble and struggle can see hope and see a paradigm for a better way. But Lord, we pray that we, you would use it for your glory and our neighbor's good and also for our joy, um, the benefits of godliness. May we reap them. In Jesus' name, amen.